Well, thank you for being here this morning. Glad that you have come this morning to worship and celebrate uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me get my notes here together. So, let's uh, turn our attention to the Lord in, in prayer this morning as we begin this time in His Word. <clears throat> Shall we pray? Our Father, we come together this morning and uh, we continue in our worship. And as we open your word together, it is our prayer, Lord, that you would speak to each of our hearts through your word. That is how you communicate to us as your word is taken by the Holy Spirit and applied to each of our hearts. And so, Lord, would you uh, open our hearts and minds and lives to your truth that we may not only receive what you say, but that we might receive you. And that our worship, Lord, may continue as we hear these things and focus our attention upon you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ gave to believers uh, two ordinances or sacraments which were to be observed and carried out. These were specific commands which believers were to obey, which acknowledge and declare the saving work of Jesus Christ on behalf of believing sinners, both individually and recognized corporately as well. Let me just say that an ordinance, by definition, is a command, a command that is given and a command that is expected to be obeyed and carried out. A sacrament as Peter Lombardo defined it back in the 12th century, is a sign of a sacred thing. In other words, a sacrament is an outward rite or ritual that is used to symbolize God's saving grace. And we're going to be observing both the ordinances or sacraments that our Lord gave us to be followed by believing people, that being baptism and communion. In order for us to understand and appreciate and follow these, we must uh, first, uh, number one, gain an understanding uh, of the gospel of our Lord. It's important for us to understand the gospel. Uh, the key verse that I find in this comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul says this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And verse 5 continues, and that he appeared. And then Paul mentions those that he uh, appeared to in a list there. I think it was R.C. Sproul who wrote a book uh, several years back called Getting the Gospel Right, and I think it's important for us uh, to understand the gospel before we proceed any further with carrying out either baptism or communion. Let's, let me have you look here on this passage with me just to highlight what Paul does as of first importance, meaning if I'm to, if I'm to summarize the gospel, if I'm to sort of bring it down to its, its, its basic points here it is for you, the gospel of God's grace. That number one, Christ died for our sins. 
Now, Jesus Christ died on a cross some 2,000 years ago, not for his own sins, because he didn't have any. He was without sin. But he died in place of sinful humanity as both a substitute and a sacrifice for sins. Uh, this is supported in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, where it says, he committed no sin. And then Peter goes on to say in 2.24 of 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter goes on to say later in that same letter in chapter 3 and verse 18, For Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. That was, that was what the Lord did in order to bring you to himself. Christ died on the cross in your place and in your stead. And in fact, John, at the opening of his gospel, pointed to Jesus and said in John chapter 1 and verse 29, of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his death was on behalf of you and on behalf of me. It was for you and it was for me. The second thing Paul says is that he was buried. He not only died for our sins, but that he was buried. And you say, well, what's the point of that? Well, you know, there are some people who say Jesus never really died. He just passed out, and they put him in the tomb, and because it was cool there, and it was damp there, he revived, and he moved a 2,000-pound stone that sealed the tomb and fought off guards and walked several miles to Jerusalem and then appeared that he arose. Well, that seems kind of far-fetched, but he was buried. He was put in the ground. He was, he was buried, and you only bury someone if they're dead. Isn't that true? <laughs> uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 29, this was part of the apostolic preaching that he was buried. But not only was he buried, and that's not the end of the story, he was raised. As it says here, he was raised on the third day, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that we gather for worship. It's a day that celebrates the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time we gather in his name on a Sunday, we're celebrating the resurrection. And he was raised physically. He was raised bodily. And you can read about that in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John chapter 20. And 20 times in the book of Acts, the resurrection is referred to in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say that is foundational to the Christian gospel and message. Not only that he died for our sins, not only that he was buried, but that he arose again on the third day. And aren't you glad that we serve a living and risen Savior in Jesus Christ? Amen. And then Paul goes on to say here, uh, in this, he appeared. He appeared. And there's 13 different appearances of Jesus at different times, different locations, different groups that are recorded in the gospel. It wasn't all just one. It was 13 different times. And Paul mentions six of the groups that he mentioned here in this context, if you read further. And in fact, the writer of Acts in Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, said that he appeared to, to the, these over a period of 40 days with many convincing proofs. It was validated by the fact that he ate with them. He talked with them. They touched him. He, he was there with them. They didn't see a spirit. They saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so there was the proof of those who had seen him. And notice this. This was all according to the scriptures. Paul says that twice over in this. According to the scriptures, which means that this was always God's revealed eternal plan of salvation from the very beginning. 
It wasn't a second plan. It was his plan from the beginning. In fact, the Bible even indicates that it's a plan from all eternity past. And if you want your mind to be blown, try, try putting your brain around that, even spiritually. From all eternity past, God had a plan. And so the gospel, in its simplicity, is the gospel, is the good news that Jesus saves. That Jesus saves. And, and sim- simplified, he died, he buried, he arose, he was seen. He appeared. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. Have you received him by faith? Do you trust him and him alone as your Savior? We'll say more about that in a moment. For those of you who know him already in that personal way, do you share him? Do you share this good news with others? You know, the Apostle Paul uh, at the beginning of the book of Romans, and if 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 are a concise summary of the gospel, the whole book of Romans is the magnum opus of the gospel. If you want to understand what the gospel's all about, study the book of Romans and study it some more and study it the rest of your life. Do you know that Martin Luther apparently read the, the, the book of Romans once a day because it was so integral to understanding the gospel and what the gospel meant? And isn't it interesting that today's Reformation Sunday? It was some 500 plus years ago that, that he nailed that 95 thesis to the doors at Wittenberg on October the 31st. Uh, which he was calling the church to, re- to, rev- to, to a reformation of its teachings, to get back to the simplicity of the gospel. And if we're not careful, even as Christ followers, some, two, uh, some uh, many years later, we can add things to that, that are added to the gospel that are not the gospel. Here it is in simplicity before us. But do you share this gospel with others? I heard this past week a, a radio personality who was talking about the, the condition of our country and was declaring that he was willing to sacrifice even his life and lay it on the line for, for the country, for the Constitution, for freedom. You know, and as I heard him say that, I thought, you know, that, that's true in a lot of the things he's saying. But then I was convicted, and the thought came to me, Joseph... Do you have the same passion and commitment to share Jesus, the good news with others, that you're willing to lay your life on the line, if need be, to tell others that they can be saved, the good news that Jesus saves? And I have to say that I was brought under conviction as I considered that. So not only are we to understand the gospel of our Lord, but secondly, we're to receive Jesus by faith. And here again, I come back to that question. Have you accepted Jesus Christ by faith? To accept him and to believe on him is an act of your will and a response of your heart to what you hear when the gospel message is preached. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 states it this way, For you are all sons of God, daughters of God. How? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Not through ritual baptism, not even observing the Lord's table, but how are you and I saved? Through faith in Jesus Christ, in the fact that he died for your sins and for my sins upon the cross, that our sins might be forgiven us, that we might be given new and everlasting life by that once-for-all sacrifice that he made on our behalf. And Galatians uh, chapter 3 continues, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ, And notice this, he links it with baptism. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
See, we come to, to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That puts us in Christ. That makes us saved. And then baptism symbolizes, as we're going to see in a moment, this relationship that God has begun in our lives, that we're related to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Someone has said that, uh, that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. And one receives Jesus Christ by faith. John put it this way, John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And to believe in his name means to believe all that the scripture has said concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and that you're trusting him and him alone as your savior, as your Lord, as your one that makes you right with God. And if you're in Jesus Christ, you are right with God. You are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God doesn't see you. He doesn't see me in our sins any longer. He sees us clothed with the very righteousness of his own son. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so after you're a believer, after you have trusted Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, you are commanded by the Lord to be baptized. Well, what is baptism? Well, in its, its beginnings, baptism uh, comes and grows out of a Jewish practice that symbolized, in, in part, purification from sins and an initiation of an individual to show that there was a change or a conversion that had taken place. It was used a lot of times of those who were proselytes or converts to Judaism, that they would, they would undergo a ritual washing or a, a ritual uh, a washing or immersion uh, to show that they were leaving their old life behind and now committing themselves fully to Judaism. In fact, I had in my uh, study Bible on archaeology a picture uh, of the ritual Jewish baths called a mikvah. Uh, and it was a pool where they would immerse or the individuals who were becoming converts to Judaism. But as for believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus commanded us uh, to, be, to be baptized. And you see that in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. He says in Mark 16, verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And did you notice where the condemnation comes in? It is not because you weren't baptized. It's because you don't believe. And it comes in that order. You believe and are baptized. You believe and are baptized. Why? Because the baptism, as I said, is an outward sign, a ritual, a rite that you undergo, that you perform, that you obey. It's an outward sign of God's grace inside of you, that you've been changed, you've been transformed, you've been born again, born from above. You've been made a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. Jesus saves. Jesus alone saves. Now, let me just say this about baptism, four, four specific things. Number one, it is a sacrament. Number one, it's a sacrament, which means it is an ordinance or a command of Christ that believers are to obey. To obey. In other words, it is a ritual or a rite that is performed uh, upon you and on your behalf. 
So it's a sacrament. The second thing that baptism is, is that it's a sign or a symbol. A sign or a symbol. Now, a sign, as you know, or a symbol points to something else, does it not? I mean, when you're looking at the traffic signs that are on the, ro- the road and, and you see one that goes like this, it, what does it mean? There's a curvy road up ahead. Uh, and so a sign points to something that is a reality. And baptism is a sign or a symbol that points to a spiritual reality. Let me have you turn to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, or God forbid. He's saying, if you're in Jesus Christ and all your sins have been forgiven because you're in Christ, does that mean you could live as you please? He's saying, God forbid that you would have that kind of response to Christ. He says, we died to sins. How can we live any longer in them? Notice this in verse 3, he says, Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We are therefore buried with him through baptism in death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life or walk in newness of life. And so this baptism that he's speaking of here is is the water baptism that believers are commanded to observe. It's this ordinance that, that Jesus commanded his followers to obey. And notice this, you're you're baptized into water. In water symbolizes death. You go under the water. You're under the water, it's a symbol of burial. You come up out of the water, it's a picture of resurrection. That you've left your old life behind in Jesus Christ because when he died on the cross in your place and in your stead, Paul is saying you died with him. To sin. Not only to the, to, the, to the consequences of sin, the penalty that he bore for you, but even the power of sin over your life has now been broken. You can now walk in a newness of life. And Jesus Christ gives us the ability, the supernatural ability, when we're in him by faith to live a life that's pleasing to God, something that we cannot do by ourselves and on our own. And he lives his life through us. And so it is a symbol, it is a picture that points to a spiritual reality of that transformation that has taken place in your life. Now, throughout church history, there have been three modes of baptism that the church has used. Three different modes. The first one is aspersion. Aspersion. Simply put, it means sprinkling. Some of you came from church backgrounds where you were sprinkled as you were baptized. And that's been one of the modes that have been used. A second way that uh, a mode that's been used in church history is a fusion, which means pouring, pouring water on the individual who is being baptized. And then the third is immersion or, or submerging or putting the individual under the water and having them come out uh, again of that water. And, and, and baptism symbolizes the believer's union with Christ in his death burial, and resurrection. And this symbol is just a symbol. 
It's important, it's spiritual, but the reality is far greater. That you are a new person, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Paul says of every believer, if any man or if any woman, if any person be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And aren't you glad that there's newness of life in Jesus Christ, that you can live a new life that's pleasing to God and useful to him and his purposes? And did you notice that the basis of this new life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In uh, chapter 6 and verse 4 again, he says, We were buried with him with baptism, that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Our entrance into this new life apart from sin uh, is accomplished by his righteousness being placed to us. The moment you trusted Christ, you identified with him in his death, burial, and his resurrection. And God has put to your account and to mine, he is imputed to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is then imparted to us as we walk with him in holiness and in sanctification. So it is a sign and a symbol. But thirdly, it is a seal, which is a mark of ownership. It is a mark of ownership that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a believer, as a Christian, belong to him. And baptism, if you would, is if, uh, uh, as, as if a, it's a confirmation to the reality of what God has done in your life through Jesus Christ. James Montgomery Boyce, in his book on uh, the Christian life, uh, mentions this account uh, from the life of Martin Luther. He mentions here, uh, quote, that baptism is again a sign frequently used that indicates ownership. And the sacraments do that, particularly baptism. Baptism indicates to the world and to ourselves that we are not our own, but that we've been bought with a price and are now identified with Jesus. Here's what he says. That truth was a great comfort to Martin Luther, who, had, who at times, when he was confused about everything, no doubt because of the strain of being in the forefront of the Reformation for 28 years. In those bleak periods, he questioned the Reformation itself. He questioned his faith. He even questioned the value of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf. But get this. At such times, we are told, he would write on his tablet in chalk two words, baptismus sum, which means from the Latin, I've been baptized. That would reassure him that he really was Christ and had been identified with him in his death and in his resurrection. I've been baptized. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've been baptized, that should be a, a seal to you that you belong to God and you are his very own. It's meant to be a seal. And finally, baptism is a statement. It is a statement to fellow Christians and to the world at large that you, as an individual, as a person, identify with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you confess him by faith that he alone, by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, has forgiven your sins, has made you fully right with God, and has given you new and everlasting life. All by God's amazing grace. See, grace is God 
giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is him withholding what we do deserve. And we find fully in Jesus Christ and in his once-for-all sacrifice, in his perfect life, in his sacrificial death, in his resurrection the third day, both the mercy and grace of God extended to us that we can receive him by faith. And baptism is for believers only. This was the New Testament teaching and pattern, as I've already mentioned, to believe and to be baptized. So my question, have you, as a believer, followed the Lord Jesus into the waters of baptism? If not, why not? That's a question you have to answer before the Lord, and also, in a sense, to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Why have you not been baptized? If you're unsure of your salvation, then I think you ought to get that question answered first, wouldn't you think? But if it's just a matter of uh, inconvenience or you don't think it's necessary, you need to read your scriptures again because God commands us, Jesus commands us, believe and be baptized. In fact, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It reminds you that this is a command of Jesus that you are to follow uh, in obedience to him. And you know, Jesus himself was baptized. And you know, when he did that, he identified with me and you, sinful people. He didn't need to be baptized. That's why John objected. Why are you being baptized? You should be baptizing me. Jesus said, let it be so that we fulfill all righteousness. And in baptism, Jesus, our Lord, underwent a thing that he did not need to do because he was without sin. He underwent that ritual baptism and washing that symbolized identification with you and me so that we likewise in turn identify with him fully in his life and in his death and resurrection. Now, baptism uh, is only done once, normally, in a person's life. It's the one ordinance that you undergo the waters of baptism and you don't repeat it. It doesn't need to be repeated. It's only once. However, the Lord gave us a second sacrament or ordinance, and that is communion. Communion. And that's when we celebrate the Lord's table together. And we will do that this morning. The second ordinance is the, the celebration of the Lord's table. And it's a command given by Jesus that was instituted at the Passover uh, by Jesus and really indicated that he was the Passover's fulfillment of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You could read about that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. When we come together and celebrate communion, the Lord's table, there are two elements that are involved. In baptism, there is the element of, wa of water and the, the candidate who is being baptized. There's two elements in, in uh, communion, the bread and the wine. The, the, the bread represents his broken body. The wine represents uh, his shed blood. And the Apostle Paul says much about uh, communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. We're not going to read the whole passage on that. But he says, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And then hear this. Paul said, For, as, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the command to, to do this in remembrance of me. In fact, uh, you see on the communion table those words on the front of that, that cloth that's there, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. But what are we to remember when we partake of communion? Uh, John MacArthur, I appreciate his list that he gives us in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He mentioned six things and I added two. He says there's much involved in that remembrance when we come to the Lord's table. The believer remembers Christ's work on the cross. He partakes of Christ's spiritual presence in the fellowship, not in the elements themselves, but it, it's a spiritual act that you are doing. It communicates uh, with the saints that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It is worship in holiness. It proclaims salvation in Christ. And it anticipates the return of the Lord and his coming kingdom. And I would add to that list, it celebrates the goodness of the Lord when you think of all that God has done to make you his very own. And then it is an expression of gratitude to God for his son Jesus Christ and for his amazing grace to us in Jesus. And communion is commanded by the Lord to be observed in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross uh, for our sins. And the key verse is this, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Christ died, he was buried, he arose, and forth, he's coming again. And every time you partake of the communion table, you are not only partaking of it in the present, but you're looking back at the past of what Jesus Christ did for you in his death, burial, and resurrection. But it's also not only for the present and for the past, it's forward-looking until he comes. And the Bible is very clear. Jesus Christ is coming again. And I pray that our heart's desire and our spiritual desire is even that, that we pray regularly in consistency. Even so, Lord Jesus, come, 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 come again. And when we partake of the Lord's table, when we partake of communion, we are unashamedly identifying with Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and coming again Savior. And we are saying to one another, and we are saying to the world, I am a Christian. I belong to Christ. I live for him. He has forgiven me, and he has saved me, not because of anything in myself, but all through his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf, God's plan of salvation. It also declares that I claim by faith Jesus Christ as my own, and I proclaim him, and I proclaim the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves. Communion is to be repeated for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. You know, Paul didn't set a time frame on that. He just says, whenever you do it, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus, indeed, as I said, is coming again. I trust that you can say hallelujah 
What a Savior. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We give you our praise, O Lord. And at times, Lord Jesus, our words even fail us to to express adequately the the gratitude and the thankfulness and the worship that is in our hearts that is, is spurred on by your Spirit for what you have done for us. And the more that we consider and and ponder and study the gospel, the good news of our salvation, the more we become in awe of you and stand in awe of you, of all that you've done for us. Lord, it is our prayer this morning for each of us that we will glorify Jesus Christ and him alone, that we will celebrate what he has done for us as we observe baptism and then the Lord's table together. And we pray, Father, that it will be acceptable worship in your sight as we give ourselves fully to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.